This is the East Traumacast. With your moderators, Veronica Madback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hi, everybody. Dave Morris here. Just want to let you know that this edition of the TraumaCast is another special episode. This is actually the audio from a recent webinar that we put on and was sponsored by CSL Bearing. We had a pro-con debate about the utilization of factor concentrates in resuscitation and reversal of anticoagulation. This TraumaCast is, as I mentioned, just the audio version of that recording. If you are interested in the topic and want to go check out a great program, if you are interested in this topic and want to go check out the entire video, I encourage you to go check out the East webpage. Our guest did a great job discussing this topic with all of its nuances, and I really encourage you to go check it out. Anyway, without further ado, I give you this special edition of the East TraumaCast. Welcome to our East Masterclass webinar. This is going to be a factor-based uh, resuscitation and reversal of anticoagulation pro-con debate. Uh, I want to uh, give a very... Uh, a very heartfelt thank you to CSL Bearing, who has uh, sponsored this webinar with a very generous educational grant. Uh, CSL Bearing is the maker of Kcentra, which is a four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate product. Uh, I would imagine that most of you who are on the call are, are familiar with the product or have maybe used it on multiple occasions. But uh, we wanted to thank them for their generous support and to reassure you that they did not dictate the content of this and they have not unduly influenced us at all. Uh, I want to thank uh, our guests today. We've got lots of uh, so-called experts today. Uh, on the pro-factor side of things, we're going to have Matt Martin and Bilal Joseph. And on the pro-plasma side of things, we've got Babak Sarani and Mackie Neal. Um, I will be the referee in the middle, Dave Morse. And uh, why don't we go ahead and get started. Let me uh, lay a couple of ground rules. We're going to have two main issues that we're going to discuss that I'll announce as we go along. Each side will get five minutes to make their argument. Um, each side will then get three minutes to rebut the argument. And I didn't actually bring a buzzer, but uh, I will be uh, watching the time closely. As always, uh, we want this to be a fair fight, no biting, kicking, eye-gouging, or gratuitous hits below the belt. Subtle hits, I guess, are allowed. Uh, personal attacks and trash-talking are allowed and encouraged. And so without further ado, let me launch right into the uh, debate here. Let me just switch over on the computer here. Apologies for the rough technical stuff. You get what you pay for, folks. All right, first up is going to be our first issue number one. For patients with massive bleeding, factor concentrates should be added to all massive transfusion protocols. Uh, starting us off on the pro-plasma side of things is going to be Mackie Neal. Dr. Neal, take it away. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dave, and I appreciate the opportunity um, to uh, to participate and the softball uh, of going up against uh, Dr. Martin to lead off. Uh, and so I've been uh, assigned the position of saying that factor concentrates do not need to be uh, added to all massive transfusion protocols, um, and we'll go through some of the evidence as to why that's the case. I have to go to the next slide. Um, I do have a couple of disclosures uh, that I want to acknowledge, including funding for um, uh, monitoring and reversal of 10A inhibitors, which we will discuss from uh, Janssen Pharmaceuticals and a previous advisory board uh, from CSL, uh, although I'm going to talk about in the context here about why uh, we don't think that uh, factor concentrates are necessary for all uh, mass transfusion protocols. Uh, next slide. Uh, and so I, I think that virtually everybody on the webinar um, by now is familiar with the proper data um, and that this is guiding our resuscitation practices. And, you know, what we know now uh, with no time to go through it in this five-minute interval is that a decade's worth of observational uh, research has led us now to randomized trials, um, which really show the benefits of uh, high plasma to platelet ratios. 
um, Dave, if you click through the two animations there, uh, you know, what we see, I think the, the results of proper are debatable in that although there is no difference in the primary uh, outcome of 24-hour or 30-day uh, mortalities, I think we're all quite familiar uh, with this divergence of the survival curve uh, at an early time point, uh, indicating that uh, high-volume plasma resuscitation approaching one-to-one-to-one -one -one, uh, leads to earlier hemostasis and perhaps uh, an earlier and very highly relevant time point of um, survival. Next slide. Um, and this has now extended really into the pre-hospital arena uh, with the recent publication uh, from uh, Jason Sperry and our group here in Pittsburgh in a multi-center trial uh, across the country um, looking at pre-hospital plasma during air medical transport or the PAMPER trial um, where administration of two units uh, of thawed plasma in the pre-hospital setting uh, reduced mortality at 30 days. Uh, by nearly 10%. And I would argue that there's very little that we've done uh, in trauma care over the course of the last few decades uh, that can acknowledge a 10% reduction in mortality at, at 30 days uh, with very few uh, adverse events. And so, next slide. Um, you know, this would raise the obvious argument is uh, more better uh, and the idea of giving factors up front I think is very appealing, and I suspect that Dr. Martin will discuss uh, Dr. Joseph's uh, excellent paper on the role of four-factor PCC um, and this propensity-matched analysis, which I think got a lot of attention uh, alongside with some other studies and some great preclinical work on the role of PCC. You know, I think we acknowledge when we look at this that certainly um, in this data uh, there was an earlier correction of INR, reduction in transfusion, uh, and reduction in mortality in what seemed to be a safe practice. Uh, but I do think that it's really critical to point out the limitations, including the, the retrospective na uh, nature of this data. Um, the fact that in this study uh, there was no protocol-based PCC administration was really left to the provider's um, uh, decision and hard for us to interpret when and who should get that, uh, and really no data on ratios presented here, and although we all know the excellent care provided in, in Tucson, uh, unclear to me as to uh, how this lines up against what we know as being our uh, evolving standard from proper. Uh, and then also very importantly, the idea um, that cost uh, is not uh, clearly considered as part of this, and what adding prothrombin concentrates to every massive transfusion protocol would do in terms of cost. Uh, and, and I would sort of close with that by saying, you know, I think we've seen some of this before where observational and retrospective data about a uh, pro-hemostatic agent uh, gives us a lot of excitement, um, but we all know how the activated factor seven story plays out in randomized trials. So moving on, what I'd like to tell you about, I, I think, are two practices, one of which should uh, be considered as part of your standard of care and another is part of the evolution. And the first is the idea of goal-directed hemostatic resuscitation. Um, if you click to the, uh, the text box, uh, there, Dave, what, what we see in this uh, pragmatic randomized trial run by the Denver group using visoelastic testing for personalized and goal-directed resuscitation um, is a reduction in mortality um, that uh, exceeds even what we saw in the PAMPER trial. Um, with a reduction in plasma and platelet transfusion requirements very similar to what was shown in the PCC uh, observational data previously presented. So this idea that we can really be personalized in our approach. I would add that there's a possibility that PCC plays a role, uh, but perhaps rather than adding it to everyone and putting it in the water, um, as it appears to be in Tucson, uh, that we can be pragmatic and personalized in our decision about who needs what factor. Uh, next slide. And so this is our massive transfusion protocol at UPMC, uh, which is based on rapid thromboelastography. And whether you use TEG or ROTEM, um, we have the ability to really personalize this approach. But what appears at the top, uh, I think, is our next uh, great wave of research um, in uh, massive transfusion resuscitation, and that is the utilization uh, of whole blood. Uh, next slide. And so... Whole blood has become a part of standard of care at our institution as well as many others, including the group in Houston. Our massive transfusion protocol now begins with eight units of whole blood stored in the emergency department as low titer uh, 
O-positive whole blood units collected with a platelet-sparing filter. Um, we're able to store these for up to 14 days. Uh, and I can tell you, really, the anecdotal and early observational experience uh, from this uh, is really a substantial uh, benefit uh, and not seeing that presentation of significant coagulopathy when resuscitating patients with um, exactly what they are bleeding. Next slide. Uh, and although uh, the data are early and observational at a couple of centers, uh, we recognize now that this is a safe practice uh, and is practical for implementation, uh, and we're excited, uh, next slide, about moving this now uh, into the pre-hospital arena. Um, next slide, please, Dave. Uh, as part of a pre-hospital trial mirroring what was done in Pamper with giving plasma and the idea of giving whole blood in the field. And so I think really the summary from this is if we can have an individualized approach using viscoelastic testing and we can utilize whole blood, um, we perhaps minimize the need for everyone to perhaps have profactor concentrates. And so uh, Dr. Martin is going to take over, um, and this is my only trash talk slide because I had real data. Uh, uh, but Dr. Martin had a long and storied career in the military where he led a number of these studies and certainly learned the benefits of whole blood and factor-based resuscitation. He's now transitioned into civilian practice and quickly forgotten everything that he learned as he dons his beret and adopts the European practice of focusing on uh, prothrombin complex concentrates. Uh, and uh, he'll take over now probably with a lot more trash talk to fill the holes in the data uh, from what he has to say about that practice. All right, thanks, Mackie. Apologies for the lag in the uh, in the slide advancement, but uh, uh, very good points. All right, Matt, the gauntlet is thrown down. All right, well, I'm going to go through this quickly and just uh, <clears throat> go and bring up my slides. Uh, thanks again for inviting me. Next slide. We we did want to arrange this debate educationally, so we we always want to go first with sh talking about the wrong way. So then the second is we can talk about the right way, and people can pick up on those differences. So, so the question is, are factor concentrates equivalent or superior to product-based resuscitation or one-to-one-to-one? -to -one -to -one? And the second question is, why Dr. Neal is resisting progress? Next slide. And, and, and I think, you know, we can really boil this down to uh, he's been at Pittsburgh for a long time, did most of his training there. I've been in – I was in Boston, did most of my undergrad, grad, med school there. Next slide. And so we can really look at this as a tale of two cities, right, and, and – the Steelers and the New England Patriots, they both have had great teams that have established empires. The question is whether you want to be on the side of the team that hasn't won the Super Bowl in, well, over a decade, or the one that's won it recently, uh, and if you advance, or actually maybe the one that won it a week ago. Next slide. So we know time is critical, right? Time to correction, coagulopathy, time to hemorrhage control. We talk about that in damage control, getting to the OR, and we know a delay of even minutes can affect mortality. Next slide. And I think anybody listening to this has been in a situation where you've had a massively bleeding patient, and then you get to that lull in blood products, and you're just waiting, and it's usually the FFP, and you're waiting and waiting. Next slide. And, and Mackie, thanks for proving my point that everyone has to throw this slide when they're talking about DCR, resuscitation, right? And the theory here was we bleed whole blood and we should give it back in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio. Next slide. And we did have the proper study, and I want everybody to remember this. This was a negative study. <laughs> Let me say that again. This was a negative study. This showed no benefit on the primary outcomes, but everybody, like Dr. Neal, has grabbed onto that one p-value of a secondary outcome that translated into no sustained benefit. Next slide. Next slide, please. And then there's questions of, does DCR even work? Uh, this is Karen Brohe's group, who has obviously done a lot on coagulopathy, uh, and they looked at DCR strategies and showed you, you were just as likely to have your traumatic coagulopathy worsen versus improved using a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one strategy. And then FFP was largely ineffective in standard doses. Next slide which is why we need better products. And, and Mackie mentioned this study. This is the Denver study that looked at basically a TEG-guided study versus a damage control approach. Uh, again, they did not use factor concentrates other than some PCC. Next slide. Uh, but they did show a survival benefit to the TEG-guided. And so my, my question is, if we're going to have all this fancy information for a TEG, shouldn't we have very focused products that can address the specific abnormalities? and not just give a whole bunch of blood in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one or other ratio. Next slide. 
And we know some factors are more important than others. Next slide. Fibrinogen is one of those factors. Uh, you know, there, there are too many studies here to show about the importance of fibrinogen. Next slide. And then the critical clotting factors, and mostly the vitamin K-dependent clotting factors. And, and we've all seen this, the patient on an anticoagulant and who gets reversed rapidly versus the one who doesn't, who gets only FFP. And I think that's why most of us have adopted PCC. Next slide. But now your patient is bleeding. They've got a high INR. And what do you want to do? So you can give them FFP. It'll take you about two to three liters to get them up to a reasonable fibrinogen level. You can give 10 units of cryo, which on average takes about an hour. Next slide. Or you can just draw these up and give them immediately. Fibrinogen concentrate and PCC. Next slide. Or, or I guess another alternative, next slide, is Dr. Neal has obviously been around. Here he is on Dr. Oz, and maybe there's some new peach pit enema coagulation therapy none of us have heard about. Next slide. We're looking forward to hearing that in the rebuttals. question is, can you give only factor concentrates versus plasma or just give it as a supplement? This is a very nice study that showed you can use purely factor concentrates without FFP, and they got the same clot strength, and these are in bleeding patients, and they decreased the overall transfusion requirements significantly and had lower sepsis and organ failure. Next slide. Similar results from this other study. You know, small study, but the factor concentrate-only group, again, significantly lower transfusion requirement and lower infectious and organ failure complications. Next slide. So the question is, who would argue against this? Next slide. Again, I think the answer is obvious. Next slide. So, so give it immediately, and it's efficacious and can lower mortality. And this was, again, another study, and they looked at a strategy of preemptively giving fibrogen concentrate versus waiting for labs versus not giving it. And coagulopathy was corrected faster, and on the right, you can see survival was improved with preemptively giving fibrinogen concentrate. Next slide. Well, and you might argue, well, just give them cryo. Cryo has high levels of fibrinogen, right? Well, this is early results from the Cryostat 2 study. So this is in a prospective randomized setting. It still took a median time of 60 minutes to get cryo started. 15% of patients took over an hour and a half. It did raise the fibrinogen, but had no impact on outcomes. Next slide, and we can compare that to this, which has not come out in publication yet. This is the FICE randomized study, and, and what you can see there is the graph on the left in blue is fibrinogen concentrate. It acts faster, and it's more effective at correcting coagulopathy than cryoprecipitate. And again, this is in a randomized study. Next slide. Well, but, but the big question is, you know, have we compared these approaches head-to-head? -head? Next slide. And, and we actually have. This is the RETIC study a prospective randomized study. They took patients severely injured and coagulopathic and randomized them to either a DCR approach or a fibrinogen concentrate and PCC clotting factor approach. And as you can see at the bottom there, actually the study was biased against the factor concentrate group because their ISS turned out higher in that group. Next slide. But even despite that bias, the factor concentrate group had significantly less requirement to go into a massive transfusion and even more concerning, next slide, if you look at that bar in red on the right, the FFP failure rate that required rescue had an odds ratio of 25 times. So the patients randomized to that group had a 25 times greater chance of failing the therapy and requiring crossover. Next slide. Well, we might ask why is FFP so bad at raising fibrinogen levels, and, and I would say it's like trying to raise your sodium level by giving a bunch of half-normal saline. Next slide. So I'm going to explain it here so even... Dr. Neal can understand it. Let's pretend this is a football field. Next slide. That blue line is your goal line. That's where you want to get to for an adequate fibrinogen level. Next slide. Well, much like the Steelers, you can give FFP and cryo, and you can see you'll get to the point there where you can keep giving units and your fibrinogen levels aren't getting any better. So you just never get there. Next slide. What about cryo? Well, cryo is a little better, and this is a shout-out to Bilal and his Arizona, Arizona Cardinals. You can get to that fibrinogen level with cryo. It takes you about a total of 40 units if you're starting depleted. And then if you look at that very bottom graph, the purple, that's factor concentrate. That's fibrinogen concentrate. You know, with one to two doses, you get them to that critical fibrinogen level very easily. Next slide. Same same philosophy for PCC. This just shows you can correct factor levels much faster and to a much higher sustained level with PCC versus FFP. Next slide. 
And, and uh, Dr. Neal already mentioned this. This is Bilal's study. Again, nas- nationwide, TQIP data study, propensity matched, very nicely done. And they showed patients that got four-factor PCC had lower mortality, needed less blood, and had no increase in the VTE risk, which is always one of our concerns. Next slide. And then the final question is, what's in this stuff anyway, right? They hand us this bag, fresh frozen. I'm not even sure exactly uh, how that goes together. It's got clotting factors, low levels of fibrinogen, but it's also got antibody cells, thousands of foreign antigens, various debris. Fibrinogen levels vary widely. And and this is actually a recent study that showed that there's a lot of other stuff in there, and this is just mitochondrial DNA damp levels that are in FFP. Not something necessarily want to be infusing intravenously into patients. Next slide. So to, to summarize, we'll look at it this way. You're, you're, you're dying of thirst, right? You want water. Next. You can have some kind of strange-looking bartender who hands you this bag of something and says, well, it's got water in it and some other stuff. Next slide. Or you can have some much more trustworthy-appearing person hand you a bottle of pure water and say, yeah, this is water. Go ahead and drink it. Next slide. So to to summarize, we need rapid correction of coagulopathy, minutes count. One-to-one-to-one or plasma-based approaches are slow, inefficient, and often ineffective. The concentrates are fast, efficient, highly effective. We have randomized data showing, if not equivalent, better outcomes. Uh, One-to-one-to-one is hardly a tailored therapy, as Dr. Neal mentioned, so we got to justify all those tags and rotems we're doing. And what's, what's the point of doing them if we can't give focused, factor concentrate replacements. Next slide. So, again, we'll we'll come back to this. The Pittsburgh Steelers, I was actually born in Pittsburgh, were the world champions back in 1976, but I think for Dr. Neal and Dr. Srani, it's time to move on. Thank you very much. Okay. Matt Martin bringing the noise. All right. I think that Uh, warranted a delay of game and an unsportsmanlike (laughs) flag, neither of which you threw. I'd like an extra five minutes on mine, too. Point well taken. All right. uh, A couple of minutes here each for rebuttal. We're going to first go to – why don't we go back to plasma with Babak. Okay. Well, hello, everybody. Um, Thank you for uh, the next uh, 10 to 15 minutes. Um, So uh, briefly, a couple things to, I think, uh, bear in mind um, in regards to the points that were raised. First of all, I think it's – I would start by giving Bilal a significant shout-out for the study that he published. I think it captured a lot of persons' attentions, certainly captured mine, and to a large degree I was kicking myself for not thinking about it in the first place and doing it myself. Having said that, I think whenever we look at the medical literature, we need to step back for a second and remember the very first thing we all learned in medical school when we took statistics, and that is that uh, these types of studies are meant to be hypothesis-generating. They are not meant to be definitive. And um, if, you, if there was an article that came out in uh, Critical Care Medicine, the February issue, so just a, a couple of weeks ago, if you were to grab that journal, there was a really good article on the pitfalls of propensity score matching. But what it comes down to is you can only match for things you know. Bilal's article could have all sorts of assumptions that he cannot control for because he never actually measured them because it's not a randomized study. So firstly, it's difficult and, and, and incorrect to hang our hat and say because he found a benefit, thus a benefit exists. I would caution everyone to think back to the 90s and the early 2000s. Factor 7 was absolutely the drug that was going to save lives. The Israelis published on it following uh, penetrating trauma. The Americans did the same thing. Lots and lots of articles came out saying, yeah, yeah, this stuff's really expensive, but guess what? It saves lives. The randomized controlled trial, the controlled trial was stopped early for lack of um, efficacy and futility. didn't show anything. TXA, crash 2 trial comes out. Randomized prospective study, profoundly methodologically flawed. We all jumped on it and said, but it's prospective randomized. Let's forget all the flaws. Matters 1, Matters 2 came out. Retrospective studies, hey, they really, really reinforced the biases I have. This stuff must work on everybody. Mm, Then come the articles from Denver saying maybe it's actually killing people if you dose it inappropriately, uh, which is the case in most patients. So it really brings home the need to study something in a randomized fashion um, and not hang your hat on even a propensity-matched product. Looking back on the studies that really brought uh, PCC to the forefront, those were randomized 
prospective studies. Those, those were the Bariplex trials. So I think that what Bilal has kind of stumbled upon is a is very intriguing. I think it's hypothesis generating, but it's wholly disproven. It should not result in a change of practice. Okay, Bilal. Hello. We can hear you. Good. It's always uh, somewhat advantageous to go last. I would just tell you, uh, um, I think uh, diverting to discussing how propensity match works and randomized trials, I don't know much about what happens in Pittsburgh or D.C., but I know here in the west side of the country we practice clinical medicine. So um, just to kind of follow up on some of those uh, points, you know, Mackie brought up the point of, uh, you know, what, you know, controlling for the ratios. I mean, in the in the PCC TQIP study that was multi-institutional, we did, we controlled for ratios, amount of PRBCs and platelets. And even after for controlling, I mean, I think the, the factor plus FFP made the difference. I think patients need some sort of resuscitation. And, you know, but having the factors induced with the resuscitation is what makes a difference. Matt's point to proper being uh, a negative study, um, I mean, what happens a lot of times, people want to see these articles and they see these big journals like New England Journal or JAMA, and they focus on the title of the, the journal rather than the actual data. And the reality is if we focus on the primary outcomes, when you, when you look at the proper patients that actually got uh, the MTP that received PCC, it was very, very small numbers. And maybe had they used PCC, who knows, maybe they would have seen the difference they were looking for. And so I think, um, you know, uh, again, just to kind of reiterate what everyone's kind of saying here, we've been doing PCC now for, um, for seven, eight years. We've done a lot of single institution studies on this, looking at ortho patients, neurosurgery, time to craniotomy. And, again, uh, we can sit in uh, Bobak's right in the sense that a lot of this is hypothesis generating, but every time we've looked at this question, uh, I think we've found the same answer. And uh, I think even the propensity matching that you're able to do with TQIP kind of helps us look at mechanism of injury, demographics, early interventions, time, transfusion ratios, physiological injury severity, organ dysfunction. So, I mean, there's something there, and I, I really think that uh, we're heading in a direction, uh, like Matt said, where it's time to really think outside the box and stop being stuck on uh, what we what we are being sold sometimes. Okay, well, you've each had a chance to uh, think about this and to talk about it, uh, MTP and, and factor use. Um, at the end of the webinar here, we'll have some survey questions to uh, kind of take the pulse of our audience to figure out uh, what they're actually doing in their practices. Uh, but let's transition on to the second issue, and this is going to be more of a case-based. And I will say we are a little bit behind schedule, so uh, take that into advisement. Um, our second issue is uh, if you have theoretical patient here, 85-year-old woman, ground-level fall, she is found to have a subdural hemorrhage, she is symptomatic, maybe with some uh, loss of uh, you know, orientation or, uh, or verbal skills. The family helpfully tells you that she is on blood thinners but don't know anything more specifically than that. You find her INR to be 2.5. Would you give prothrombin complex concentrate or other factors? That is the question. Bilal, we're going to go right back to you and let you go ahead with your uh, five-minute argument. So I think you've got a patient who's got a significant bleed in their head, and we don't know what we should give them. I just remember that question to the audience as we go forward through this. And I think, you know, we've got pretty fair teams here. Uh, we'll see what, what comes out toward the end here. I think really we need to know. Um, it's important to know who your uh, discussants or, or, or um, debaters are. I mean, Dr. Sarani apparently talks about off-label uses of drugs all the time, and uh, I think he's an advisor. I don't want to focus on the fact that he's an advisor for Portola. I don't think it really matters that much. But he's from D.C., so, you know, I wanted to kind of look into what Dr. Anil and Dr. Sarani, um, you know, they promote PCC all over Twitter. I'm not sure if that says anything. It's not really evidence-based, but on this next slide here, you can see uh, Dr. Sarani's and Dr. Neal's uh, retweeting of, I mean, even, you know, I can see ourselves using PCC, so I'm pretty much done. That's the end of my argument. So, anyways, next slide. Uh, what you're going to hear a lot about is this Anexa 4 trial, which just recently published in New England Journal of Medicine, 352 patients, and I'm sure Dr. Sarani will go more into detail. you got a bolus uh, therapy followed by two hours of infusion. It's like it's the remedy that's going to save the world uh, for patients who come in with bleeding on these 10A inhibitors. And really, if you focus on their outcomes, it was percent change in the anti-factor 10A. It didn't talk about 
hemostasis, but more on the lines of the 10A activity. And next slide, uh, this is another, uh, this is the main table that basically just shows you that the activity, um, that the median activity and change of activity after uh, the infusion of the drug, and then what happens once the infusion stops. And they kind of, um, you know, it's a New England Journal trial, so everyone's like, oh, this is, this is it, this is the answer. It's a yes, yes for sure. But if we go on to the next slide, I think some things you have to think about when you look at this study. Uh, it was eight countries who participated in this very heterogeneous group. Uh, the other important thing is none of them were trauma patients. Uh, they had patients of all kinds of uh, bleeding. I'm not trying to take away from the importance of the study or what the study is, but uh, we have to be realistic when we put it into our practice and what we're using it for in our in our uh, in our, our in our area in medicine. Uh, primary outcome was actually anti-factor 10A activity, not actual clinical hemostasis. They did not have a control group. 10% had thrombotic events, and the cost was somewhere between, you know, you hear anything from 20 to 60,000 per dose. Um, the other things, you know, they excluded patients who might die, and if you read really carefully, 14% of the population who they were trying to study actually died. And so we had no idea if these patients would have died anyways with or without therapy. And, uh, you know, 10% had thrombotic events, quite significant. Uh, and even in the manuscript itself, next slide please, it states overall there was no significant relationship between hemostatic efficacy and a reduction in anti-factor 10A uh, activity during the uh, giving the adenexinet. And, you know, their ROC curve where they compared hemostatic efficacy to the therapy drug was only 0.64, which means it didn't really correlate that well. Next slide, please. I mean, the trial was done by the company, designed, conducted, performed the statistical analysis, analyzed, interpreted the data, hired a medical writer to write paper. And I'm not saying that we can't do industry-funded research, but, you know, there's got there's something in this slide. I don't know. You guys can all decide what that is. Um, which brings me to our next slide, please. Uh, and this is a great review, and everyone should read this. And uh, Dr. Hunt, Neil, and Stansbell were the authors of this. And it looks at a nice review of uh, reversing anti-factor 10A agents and the unmet needs in trauma patients. And, you know, really, as they discussed in this trial by Dr. Neal, Dr. Sarani's friend there, um, you know, non-traumatic bleeding only in the, in the ADNX Alpha trial. Uh, there's lack of published research on the use of it uh, to reverse 10 agents before urgent surgery in severely injured patients. That's us. That's who we operate on. And they even state PCC has been used in multiple studies to reverse. And there's plenty of PCC animal data around for years from the Germans and on. Dr. Martin has done an amazing job publishing. And we're moving very cautiously. But just because we move cautiously doesn't mean we're afraid. This table here kind of summarizes everything that we've kind of discussed. Um, this is the next slide. So you see cost, a huge difference in single versus double doses. I mean, you know, you can hear everything from 20000 up to 60000 per reversal. There's no cost on human life, but at the same point, we have to be realistic about resources. Dosing is a bolus followed by a two-hour infusion. When the infusion stops, the therapy's gone. I think that's really important to note, whereas PCC, as Matt said, can be available immediately, and you give the dose, works within 15 to 20 minutes. The duration of effect can be anywhere around two hours for that next event, whereas in the four-factor PCC, 12 to 24 hours, you see the clinical efficacy that was uh, published in some of the clinical trials, 82% versus 72%. I'm not sure how to interpret that completely, but neither one is a perfect drug. Um, and then thrombotic events, again, up to 10% in adnexin. And this is only of one or two trials they've done uh, versus the 8% in the PCC. Uh, in my next slide, which is um, really when you think about this, we're always focused on we need a reversal agent for, for the NOAX or the DOAX. And that's what we're focused on. But we can't forget that when a patient's injured, the tissue injury causes coagulopathy of trauma. And so that's really important. And how well, next slide, does, does the adnexa alpha, next slide, yeah, there you go. Uh, how well does the adnexa alpha actually reverse coagulopathy of trauma or any of the other things? And in case that was presented by Dr. Morris, we don't know what this patient was on. And so you give it to treat this patient, the only thing you're going to be reversing is 10A and while the drug is giving. Next slide, please. And whereas if you're giving PCC, what you're seeing is you're seeing the ability to impact, you know, different areas of the patient's disease process. The coagulopathy from the tissue injury, if the patient was on Coumadin, DTIs, or 10A inhibitors, you're going to have some response immediately until you start getting all your fancy labs and pegs and whatever else we decide to do. Next slide. I mean, unfortunately, I'm not sure um, this was an even match, but uh, the Admexa or the 
plasma busters. Dr. Martin and myself are here. Next slide, please. And uh, this is a clear knockout. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> you can tell uh, surgeons spend a lot of time cutting heads out for pasting later on. Uh, so we just have to keep those in a file somewhere. Um, all right. Back to Dr. Sarani for pro-plasma approach. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, so, uh, and um but I'll kind of start off by uh, talking about how the West Coast uh, likes to practice clinical medicine based on our last uh, debate. I really appreciate that. It's interesting to me that you quoted animal data. I'm just wondering if you're a veterinarian out there or a hospital and some comments on that would be appreciated. Second thing I noticed was a complete lack of any significant citations uh, related to articles proving that PCC works for any of the uh, DOAC-type agents. I like the, uh, the NXF4 reference. That's absolutely appropriate. But the PCC stuff seems to be more like faith-based medicine than evidence-based medicine. Um, I think in, uh, in consideration of time, since David uh, said we're a little bit behind, I'm going to skip past this one slide. These are the various DOACs, how they work, and their uh, longevity, things like that. To get to the... Um, Scenario that uh, you posed there, Dave. I think that things to ask are firstly, you know, what anticoagulant is she on? That that matters, not necessarily by the name, but certainly by the mechanism of action. I do not think it's at all reasonable to treat a factor two inhibitor the same way you treat a 10A inhibitor, the same way you treat a um, uh, Coumadin uh, vitamin K um, antagonist inhibitor, or you know, aspirin plavix. These are very different things. And to say one size fits all uh, in a very unproven scenario, I think is, is a real disservice to the patient. Second thing we need to factor in is when was the last time this individual took their dose? Regardless of what she has taken outside of uh, Coumadin, there's no way for us to know the activity of the drug on board um, in a realistic sense, in, a, in, a, in an actual hospital clinical setting. And so you need to factor in the time and then try to make a little bit of a um, judgment as to the degree of coagulopathy still present, factoring in things such as renal function and its impact on the drug's half-life and clearance. And then lastly, and certainly not least, is the location of the bleed. And you gave us an elderly individual with a head bleed. That's very different than someone who's got a GI bleed that maybe I can support through with some blood transfusion, maybe a small retroperitoneal bleed, not a big deal. You give me an old lady who fell, who's anticoagulated, and the consequences of that, I'm going to be very, very aggressive. And why would I possibly want to use an off-label use of a drug when there are on-label proven indications for others? Uh, next, next slide. So very briefly, if the person is on Dibicitran, I would give them Idarosuzumab. It is a drug that works exactly like Digibind. It's a monoclonal antibody that will attack that parent molecule, Dibicitran, and just take it out of action. It's got an irreversible bond, and the drug is gone, and we are done with the story. So one of Bilal's um, slides showed giving PCC to a um, to Dibicitran to a factor two inhibitor. I do not understand why you would possibly do that, and cost is not an issue anymore because it's three thousand bucks. Not very much different than your PCC. Next slide. Um, if you want to have some evidence based behind what I'm talking about, here is the slide that talks about the uh, efficacy of Idarosuzumab, depending on whatever clotting time you want to use, thrombin time, look at the y-axis. Point is, when you give drug, you lock that patient down below normal, and they will stay there for 24 hours or greater. Uh, next slide. Now, Indexin at Alpha is kind of the new, new kid on the block, and I think it does need to prove itself some, however... Uh, as Bilal talked about, I'm going to allude to shortly, it is a, a nonspecific reversal agent for any 10A inhibitor. It basically is a decoy molecule, looks like a 10A inhibitor, but has no biological activity, uh, and, and it has a greater affinity for the parent drug than your own endogenous uh, 10A receptor. It is expensive. I don't know about $60,000. My, my goodness, my friend, you need to learn how to haggle. Um, 25000 or so, but there's a 50% reimbursement from CMS for on-label use, which is essentially the same way many other drugs, including uh, Case Center, were onboarded onto the market. So, you know, yes, it is absolutely expensive. There's no debating that. But uh, I would suggest to you, for someone who's going to go to the intensive care unit with intracranial hemorrhage, who may need to be intubated, may need a craniectomy, may be in the ICU forever, trach, peg, placed, 12000 25000 is really just a drop in the bucket. Next slide. 
And so uh, Bilal uh, quoted you the article that recently came out. My slides are a little bit older. I'm going to quote you the, uh, the preliminary study to, to the 2019 publication. This was the Anexa 4 trial, 67 patients, assessed outcome on 47. And interestingly, the patients were on Apixaban, Rivaroxaban, but they were also on Inoxaparin. This, this really brings home the point that Anexa is a, is a nonspecific 10A receptor that can be used in multiple settings. Next slide. And the drug is given as a, a bolus followed by continuous infusion. If you look at the red uh, graph, you'll find that when the bolus is given, you get uh, near, near immediate reversal of the 10A effect, and it lasts during the time of the infusion. Now, you do get drug rebound. You get drug rebound very quickly when the infusion stops, which may be a problem, and you may need to uh, dose the drug a second go-around. We don't know what's going to happen to these people, and I think there's a lot more study that needs to be done. But at least for that two-hour time interval, when your neurosurgeon is operating on the brain or you're going to get that two-hour follow-up CT scan, at least you can be rest assured that you have actually resolved the patient's coagulopathy. And then you have to make a decision, unfortunately, as to whether you're going to expend more dollars hanging the drug again. Keep going. Next slide. Um, in terms of clinical outcome, let's talk about clinical outcome. Let's not talk about laboratory-based outcomes. The drug was adjudicated as being um, excellent or good uh, using a priority um, decided upon definitions in about 80% um, of the cases. Is it a silver bullet? No. Is it better than giving PCC? I'm giving a drug for which I cannot measure any endpoint whatsoever um, and I, for which I have no uh, known efficacy and I'm going with faith-based medicine. I would not do that. I, I'd rather give someone where four out of five times, at least I can rest assured that something good is going to happen. Next slide. In terms of a thrombotic risk, the thrombotic risk is directly related to the physician. It's us. It is not the drug. We are the ones who decide when we're going to resume anticoagulation. So when your neurosurgeon comes by and says, you can restart anticoagulation for four to six weeks, I would suggest to you it's incumbent upon the trauma surgeon to say, why not? Why can't I restart anticoagulation in 10 days or 12 days? It's the underlying hypercoagulable disorder for which the patient was on the 10A in the first place that results in the thrombotic event, not the drug. Next slide. And I, you know, tried to look around for anything related to uh, PCC use as for reversal of DOACs in the human, not in the animal model. And I really just found this one graph, where this one graph shows that, yes, it is more efficacious than placebo, which I guess is good, but guess what? You're always below the norm for thrombin generation until significant amount of time has gone by. And I don't know at that point in time how much is the impact of time and metabolism of drug versus the co-infusion of the PCC. I think the, the point remains very open and needs better study until we can say we can utilize PCCs for reversal of DOACs, particularly when you have a known reversal agent with proven efficacy. And I think that's my last slide. I didn't want to put too much more... Uh, stuff in there and uh, so we would have time for uh, for a nice debate. <laughs> okay, thanks Bob. All right, let's do a quick rebuttal here. Uh Dr. Martin, get you out of the penalty box and let you uh, talk some more here. All right. Well, uh thanks guys and and both great talks. I, I real quickly want to ask the other three speakers. So, and this is just ha how you're practicing. You, you have a 85-year-old female on a Pixaban who comes in and fell GCS15 and she's got, you know, a, the the four millimeter intraparenchymal contusion on the CT scan. Are you going to reverse her 100% of the time, or are some of those you're just watching? Uh, Bilal, what are you guys doing? We'll, uh, it's case dependent. So you won't always reverse? Correct. Babak? We will not reverse, especially if it's an elderly individual who's got some room uh, to swell, you know, a little cerebral atrophy, so we would not reverse it. We would get a repeat CT and put it in the ICU. How about you, Mackie? 100% uh, agree with um, uh, Babak with uh, the caveat that we would make a decision likely timed on when the last dose uh, was, and especially for people that are a couple of half-lives removed, uh, our reversal rate is very low. Okay, thanks, and that's that's exactly what we're doing. I think I just had three this week that we didn't give any reversal agents, just repeated the CT, and they did fine. And and the point is, and especially when we're talking about that Anexa 4 study, is, you know, their outcome was, did their bleed get worse? We know many patients, they stop bleeding on their own, whether you give them anything. So we have no idea what percentage might have gotten worse if they hadn't gotten the agent. Um 
the other interesting thing is I think it was around 20% of the patients who they enrolled in that study actually had no detectable anti-factor 10A levels. So they, they either actually weren't taking the drug or they just weren't getting the anti-factor 10A activity. So, so now we're automatically talking about a, a portion of the group who has no chance of benefiting from the drug because you're not reversing anything. And, and, and I think part of this comes down to are we treating a lab assay or are we treating a clinical outcome? And, and the Inexa 4 looked at anti-factor 10A activity, and the assumption is that has some meaning, right, that that translates to a better clinical outcome and decreased bleeding. And, and that data we just don't have. And, and fortunately, the FDA, I think, has realized the limitation of their data and said, well, we need a randomized trial, uh, which, which is, is really what we need on this topic. Uh, I, have, I have very little doubt that relatively soon we're going to get to a point, both for resuscitation and reversal, where people look back and say, I can't believe those cavemen surgeon actually harvested blood from a person, processed it, and then infused it into another person rather than just giving them, you know, targeted pharmacotherapy. So, so a lot more to learn. Uh, Babak, I do think there's more clinical data out there on PCCs for reversal of, of DOACs than, you know, than the one graph you showed. There's a bunch of clinical series. Again, not randomized trials, but there, there are now multiple series, you know, looking at the outcomes and did people progress to a bleed. I, I think most of us would agree it's faster, lower volume than, than FFP. And, you know, and, and again, I think we've voted with our feet, and most places now are, are using PCC for reversal of those agents, other than dabigatran. Uh, and uh, that's all I have to say. I'll turn it over to Mackie. Okay. Mackie, go ahead. Yeah, so I think, you know, this is an area where we're going to find more agreement than certainly in the first one. Um, I guess I, I would point out the the following thing specific to this case you know i find the inr to be a random number generator in in trauma the the place where an inr of 2.5 is relevant is if the patient is on warfarin and you know i think it uh it warrants uh reinforcing that you know pcc um i think should be a standard in the absence of a contraindication uh, for reversing warfarin but would i give it empirically in this situation uh no perhaps not and you know i think babak's point about figuring out what drug is uh is needed or was being utilized is key um to the topic of you know reversal uh, so when we published our first observational series on patients on uh, rivaroxaban, um, we reversed 35% of the patients that came through the door. And this was when we were all um, raising the rally cry uh, that, um, you know, companies had put poison in the water uh, when we had these agents that didn't have specific uh, reversal. And then I think what we've learned as time has gone on um, is uh, you heard the, the consensus among the panel that, um, you know, these drugs are rapidly clear. You wait a couple of half-lifes, um, and we can get away with not doing uh, any form of reversal. And, in fact, when we just looked at that, uh, the data in our same institution, um, in another paper that's impressed, our reversal rate is now 6%. Um, and that's no change in protocol. That's uh, increasing um, understanding of the drug and bioavailability. I think specifically to Indexa uh, that uh, we have to reiterate Babak's uh, point. I initially had a great deal of pause about thrombotic complications, 18% in the earliest studies, um, uh, Bilal quotes 10% here, uh, but it really key. You gotta, you gotta do this East Coast style and not West Coast style. You have to read the paper and understand the statistics, right? That it's not just the number that they put up there at 10%, but when you read that anticoagulation was resumed, um, you've got like single patient, right, having a thrombotic complication. And so, uh, I, I do think it unmasks, uh, the underlying hypercoagulable state, um, and we need to understand this a little bit better. There may be a real signal there, uh, but the way that this is going to be figured out, and my closing point would be um, there now is enough equipoise, I think, and, and enough uncertainty, especially in my institution where I've got both of these drugs in this patient that comes in, um, where we need a head-to-head -head in trauma um, specific reversal versus PCC, and it's not going to be able to extrapolate that data from spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Um, that's not going to give us the answer. Uh, this needs to be a trauma-focused study. Okay. Well, lots to think about. Let me uh, switch back to the other system here real quick. Again, apologies for the 
caveman nature of this. Um, we have now about uh, 10, 12 minutes or so for audience uh, question and answer. Um, if you uh, notice on the lower left-hand side of your screen, there's a little text uh, cartoon bubble icon. If you click on that, you can actually text your questions to me, and I will read them out uh, to the uh, to the panel. If you have a, a question for a specific member of the panel, please note that in your question. Um, off the top of my head, I want to ask the first question, and one of the issues that nobody really touched on that I think is critical is the uh, issue of circulating volume, particularly in, in the MTP patients. How does that factor into your decision? And I'll direct this uh, at Matt Martin. Uh, yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and not only how does it factor in, but what percentage of the outcomes we're talking about are due to reversal of coagulopathy, are due to volume replacement, or are due to what we'll call the, you know, the other voodoo of whatever is in whatever solution or drug or blood product we're giving. And, and that we don't just know right now. I mean, the, you know, Mackie mentioned the proper study and the pamper study, and, and it's unclear, you know, what, did they get the benefit, especially the pre-hospital? You know, was it, was it the volume that they got? Was it the volume of plasma instead of crystalloid? Was it the anti, or was it the coagulation impact? You know, was it the endothelial pr protection of plasma? We have no idea. Um, there is there is somewhat of a, a genetic fallacy, which is where you assume you know that you got some endpoint and that that was the only way you could get there. So so we showed there was probably a benefit of plasma pre-hospital. We also have data there's a benefit of packed cells pre-hospital. Uh, you know the question is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that plasma is the only way to get you there. And if you did something like a fibrinogen concentrate, would they have had the same or even better outcomes? That's what we don't know. I think that's what the, the Europeans are starting to show us, and I think that's the next interesting question out there. Okay. Next question here. Uh, what coagulation test do you actually send on a patient who is anticoagulated to better define what agent it might, what agent the patient might be on? I'll, I'll uh, direct that one to Bilal. We're, uh, according to, uh, you know, I guess our water is bad out here, but we actually still using, we have our, you know, we use TEG during the proper trial. We've got TEG systems coming when we changed over our medical health system, but I mean, we're still using, you know, our INR uh, coagulation cascade to basically do that. I don't think, I mean, I'm still, I'm, I'm one of those people that maybe I don't have all the evidence that everyone out there in this call has, but I think there's got to be some common sense to this, and I have yet to read something showing me that, you know, um, INR has been such a bad um bad, uh, I wouldn't say marker, clinical outcome to follow for our patients. Show me clinical outcomes that are better because we're finding more uh, lab assay type data and, and go from there. But to short answer to your question, we're still using uh, the standard labs. Our our system is putting up the tags in the next uh, few months. So. Okay, next question. Um, I guess uh, I'll send this one to Babak. Um, when you have a patient who is, uh, you're going to use PCC, how is it dosed? Is it controlled by pharmacy, or do you have a standard empiric dose that you give? So um, we, we have a sliding scale dose, uh, depending on the INR. Uh, PCC at George Washington is used uh, for on-label use for uh, Coumadin reversal. It is absolutely our drug of choice for Coumadin reversal, and we use it commonly. We'll give doses between 25 and 50 uh, units per kilogram, depending on the opening INR. That's all written in our EMR. So you have both your um, <clears throat> your Cerner. You have either Cerner that's going to help you with uh, dosing, or you can call the pharmacy and they'll have basically the same thing to give you a helping hand. I have given lower doses before in very select circumstances. When I might just want a very transient, low-grade reversal, for example, a pericardiocentesis in a cardiology, cardiac surgical patient, something like that. But for trauma, where you're going to go all in, 25 to 50 units per kg plus 10 milligrams of vitamin K IV. Can I ask a question on that? Do uh, for the other speakers on the call? Do you guys use vitamin K for every reversal with um, PCC? So we, it's Bob Ack, We only use vitamin K if we want the reversal to last. And again, you know, I, it's happened only a couple of times 
when one of the cardiac surgeons has come up to me and said, hey, I did a whatever, you know, AVR, and this guy's on Coumadin. He's got an effusion. I really want to take him to the OR, do a window, but I don't want to fully reverse him and keep him reversed because he's got an AVR. In those instances, I tend to tell them to give 12 units, 15 units per kilo of K-Centra. Do not give vitamin K at all, and you'll get reliably a drug rebound six or eight hours later. But if someone's got TBI or for real-life trauma, then, yes, 100% of them will get a 10-milligram dose, so we get pharmacologic reversal, pharmacologic dose reversal of the underlying Coumadin. We will not give vitamin K if we use PCC off-label. Like if I'm using PCC back before I had uh, Idarisuzumab and then Vexen and Alpha, we were using PCC off-label because we had nothing else. And in those instances, vitamin K is not going to help you, so we didn't give it. Okay, a uh, question for Mackie. Um, after you give PCC, how quickly do you find that it works, and do you wait for normal lab tests before operative intervention, such as uh, craniotomy? Uh, so the, the answer to the question, second question is um, absolutely not. Uh, you know, I say we we would not um, we would not delay based on a laboratory monitoring because you know again I, I, although we'll see correction of an INR I think there's there's two points to the first part of the question and that is wh when do you see uh, correction of the laboratory test and when do you see clinical efficacy um, and uh, I, I found that our experience has been um, that it has been. Uh, exceedingly rare, um, count on one hand the number of times that we have had to redose or increase the dose of PCC. Uh, the clinical efficacy is, is quite rapid. Um, we frequently do not recheck the lab test, so it's hard for me to say um, with what frequency we actually see normalization of the INR, although when we have checked it, uh, it does seem to be rather effective. And our, our practice regarding you know, vitamin K is very similar to what uh, Dr. Sarani described. I've got time, I guess, for one more quick question uh, for Matt Martin. Um, are you using PCC for non-trauma uses such as GI bleed where there's underlying hepatic dysfunction, and does it work the same way? Uh, we, we generally won't use it as a general agent for bleeding situations like that. Again, for somebody who's on Coumadin or one of the, one of the DOACs that we think PCC reverses well, we'll use it. Uh, but no, not not just a general, and I think that's kind of magical thinking of, oh, somebody's bleeding, you know, but they're, they're not on an agent, and I'm going to give this drug, and it's magically going to make them stop bleeding. You know, so you know would, it, would, it's, it's kind of interesting that. the data that we, we embrace and reject. I mean, actually, if, if you want to look at the strongest data on any reversal agent with intracranial hemorrhage that actually clinically improves outcomes, it, it would be factor seven. Right, a New England Journal trial randomized study that showed actually a benefit in, in hematoma growth and mortality. Uh, you know, but no, nobody's talking about factor seven for reversal anymore. You know, we're talking about these new agents. You know, there was that Tasco paper that just looked at seven and TBI. It was, uh, I think, Jerkovich and a bunch of people from AAST who, but it didn't show benefit. And but that wasn't a prospective randomized trial. But they looked at their their databases, and they found that it didn't, so it's quite interesting. Our group published a uh, paper in 2017 uh, in the journal Blood Coagulation and Fibrinolysis, where we looked at the efficacy of four-factor PCC for non-vitamin K-dependent uh, coagulopathy. Most of those patients either had uh, diffuse coagulopathy, critical illness, severely, severely sick septic patients, or were cirrhotics. And, you know, it's a retrospective study. It is profoundly methodologically limited because it's a retrospective study of the unit for people who bleed for a variety of reasons. But we actually found efficacy. And so we will use PCC. We will use four-factor PCC to reverse bleeding in cirrhotic patients as well as in diffuse coagulopathy from just DIC and um, sepsis. Yeah, and I, I think that highlights this, you know, the, the critical aspect underlying this whole discussion is whether we are reversing uh, isolated pharmacologic anticoagulation or whether we are uh, reversing a component of the endogenous coagulopathy uh, in trauma. And so, you know, I can adopt the pro-PCC side and to say that, you know, if I have a patient who I think based on mechanism, location of injury, and clinical presentation has, you know, a significant coagulopathy or risk for coagulopathy, um, you know, a drug uh, or agent like 
PCCs um, that potentially can affect both of those is going to be uh, advantageous over single agent. I think the much more common scenario, though, is somebody like these clinical scenarios where you have an isolated uh, bleeding event, and, and that's where the um, I think the ball is in the air. Matt, he just Martin, uh, he, he just told us we won. I think that's what Mackie just said. But <laughs> real quick though, on the on the point about liver failure, I think in the package insert for PCC, um, I know our pharmacists here get really hesitant when we use it for liver failure patients. Uh, we may want to look into that. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I'm almost positive there's a it's not supposed to be used in liver failure. So uh, one other quick question: um, any benefit of using uh, FIBA? versus K-Centra? Um, I guess whoever wants to take that question. Unless you want to blow a lot of money and go off-label use, um, <laughs> give an activated product with a potential for higher VTED uh, risk, no. <laughs> Actually, we, we've used FIBA on a couple of patients, uh, and and they survived, but, but we, we used it because the pharmacy was very short of PCC or didn't have the prax bind or whatever agent was needed uh, but that's that's the only time i've ever used it right yeah. two or three cases but it's been recently and i'm not sure exactly why we had that shortage is, can i throw in another question on that we didn't discuss oh, one of Ma one of mackie's former fellows um who's currently in mississippi they use pcc in the field because they have long transports they don't have enough product on the on the transfer uh, helicopters is anyone using PCC pre-hospital before they even get to the trauma centers? We're we're not um, Bilal, but I think it's a very exciting avenue uh, of research, uh, and I do think there are some investigations uh, that are ongoing in other places. Um, but uh, certainly attractive as we've put everything else on a helicopter um, to consider doing something like that. Yeah, and that's and that's. A topic of conversation, though, like, you know, we keep trying to push these things out further, and obviously on the military end, that that's a hot topic. Should we be pushing that out? A word of caution with that, and, and our lab showed this in a recent paper, is giving PCC alone to a, this is in an animal model, but a physiologically exhausted, very coagulopathic animal actually provoked DIC. So, so I, w I would be very hesitant about pushing out, you know, like PCC alone and giving it to somebody who already is severely coagulopathic. And, and what we showed is they had to have a reasonable fibrinogen substrate, otherwise you'll push them into DIC. So, so I would be very hesitant about just shotgunning, giving everyone PCC right. uh, because of that concern. I mean, so like I like I said, you should just give them whole blood. <laughs> I mean, that was the lesson we learned here, though, too, is it, it's not PCC versus FFP. It's really in conjunction, and that's the difference. Some sort, you need to resuscitate these patients as well and in and, and the coagulopathy of trauma patients. I think that's where it is, and can we add to the whole blood to make it better? So. All right. Well, unfortunately, uh, we have to move on and uh, wrap this up. I've got a quick question here for audience members. Uh, we're going to let you decide who won the debate here. So which side was more persuasive for issue number one, PCC use in MTP? Is it pro-plasma pro or pro-factor or neither? They're all full of beans. I'll let you uh, take a minute there and respond. Babak and Mackie, you guys aren't allowed to vote. Let's just be clear. It's only letting me click uh, once. <laughs> I'm from Elon. I just voted 17 times. It's my blood. Well, you are in D.C., so. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> All right, I'll just give it a couple more seconds here. People like new and shiny. That doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> I'm just going to read more of your work. All right, results of that poll. Looks like Bilal and Matt pulled it out by a nose. Later. There will be uh, appropriate trash talking here at the next meeting. All right, second question. For issue number two, which side was more persuasive, PCC use and reversal of anticoagulation? And, Mackie, I hope all your fellows aren't out there voting as well. Man, you <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. You're the one with the Army, <laughs> but they better be. Tony, that means you. Okay, looks like we're kind of trickling down here. 
you know, counting these votes is like is like making popcorn. You you, you got to get that exact right spot where you don't burn it. Yeah, right now. Yeah, I think. I think right now is a good spot. I think we'll just kill it here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it looks Sweet. like Ronnie and Mackie pulled that one out too by a nose, but still quite a bit of division, which is uh, which is I think appropriate for this topic. Uh, not not a lot of settled answers just yet. Well, um, thank you all for joining us. I want to thank Matt, Bilal, Babak, and Mackie. Uh, you guys are obviously way smarter than me. Uh, and uh, thank you for sharing your information and, uh, and the and the SAS, too. That's always nice. Uh, thanks for the time that you've given to this. Um, also, again, a shout-out to CSL Bearing for supporting this with an educational grant. Um, very generous of them, and we appreciate their support. Uh, for those of you who may not be able to... Uh, or, not be able to view this. We are going to post it as an audio file on the web page. We're going to uh, send it out as a trauma cast, and the video uh, of this webinar will also be stored on the East web page. If you go to the East under the Education tab, uh, the East web page under the Education tab under the right, actually you have to click Trauma Cast, and then over on the right is uh, the East Masterclass link where you can find this uh, archived as soon as I get it edited. So again, on behalf of East, thank you to our guests and. Uh, uh, for joining us, Matt, Mackie, Babak, and Bilal, thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. Thank thanks, you Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks to the panelists. Absolutely. Thanks to East and SESL. And yeah. great moderating, Dave. Thanks. Well, I do my best. Thanks, everybody. The, official, and, uh, the officials are always aligned against Pittsburgh. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> There's a deflate gate joke in there somewhere, I guess. That's right. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.